When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. It's time to cast off on a new adventure. This is Real Adventures with Patrick Dangerfield and Aaron Hadgood. Hello and welcome to Real Adventures from wherever you are listening right around the country. Patrick Dangerfield and Aaron Habgood joining you this morning to talk all things fishing, boating and the great outdoors. Good morning to you, Redman. Oh, it's been a slow start this morning, Patrick. Uh, gone to get up to do the show and young Finn has decided he wanted to spew <laughs> all over Kari and uh, I've had to do the change. I nearly, nearly missed this first segment. It's been a very slow start. There's no doubt, I, I swear babies are very, very good at timing their vomits or horrendous poos just when you need to be somewhere at a specific time. So, nice work, Finn. Now, you can <laughs> follow us on our Real Adventures Facebook and Instagram pages to join in the conversation. We're going to chat a little later about bar crushings. We've seen some very interesting videos throughout the week on social media, so Aaron's going to talk through the do's and the don'ts when you're crossing bars, and specifically around areas that you haven't been to before but you're looking to go on a, your next fishing adventure, how to access and approach those places that you're not sure how to do. Now, Redmond, during the week, during the last week rather, we didn't cover it off on a huge amount of detail, but you went and chased uh, some beautiful southern bluefin tuna and you caught an absolute cracker. Yeah, so... And there was a bit of a story behind it as well. <laughs> we ran out of a bit of time last week, so we had to punch through it pretty quickly. But today we had a little bit of time. So we headed down to Portland, and we, f- we fished day one, and we it was shut down. So what I mean by that, dodge tides. But we knew there was going to be dodge tides. So what we used that day for was to actually suss out the area. There was one other fish caught. Dodge tide, just quickly. Uh, what a dodge tide is, it means there's no... I guess no tide during the day or one tide during the day. So quite often every tide, a tide runs six hourly. So high tide, low tide, high tide, low tide. Where a dodge tide means there's no flow in the water. So it's very little tidal flow, but also there might be only one tide for the day. Oh, sorry. Well, two for the day, one during the day, one during the night. So what I mean by dodge tide, it was dead flat. So if you look on your graph on Willyweather that we used to see our tidal strengths and and the flow on it, it was pretty much dead flat. Like, if it was your heartbeat, you'd be in trouble. Where the next day, yeah, I, your heartbeat. <laughs> well, back in the day, I said to the boys, uh, the next day is going to be better with Chris and Braden. I said, the next day should be much better. We've got a quite fair bit of an increase in that incoming tide. And I think that'll be our best chance. If we don't have a fish first thing in the morning, as the tide change comes at around that 11.50 it was, I said, that would be another bite time on the le- on the other side of that. But the other side was very slow tide. So we had to make the most of those two times. And I believed after that, if it didn't happen go in sort of thing we rocked up and we hooked up so the first day we did our scouting around which I like to do I always do two days first day searching for where the bait's holding because the bait's still in the area but 
as I've always said, no flow, no go, and it comes back to the barrel bluefin tuna. When there's no flow, I find that the, the fish don't bite that well. We get the odd bite, someone might get lucky, it might be you, but I used that day to look around. We hooked up at about roughly 8.30, give or take, and uh, I knew it was a beautiful fish, and <laughs> it's funny enough, Braden, his first barrel bluefin tuna, he's on the rod, and he's like, at the start, he's going as hard as he possibly could. And I said to him, no, slow down, Braden, slow down. I said, you've seriously, you could be here for two, four, five, six hours. You don't know. It could be 10 minutes. And he's going as hard as he could. And then 40 minutes in, he's like, yeah, I probably should have listened to the start. Now I'm stuffed. So he's stuffed trying to bring this big fish in, just tired. And I was like, slow down, mate, just relax. Anyway, we got into a nice groove. Then all of a sudden, Braden goes, this reel's moving. And I said to Chris, check, like, Chris, check the reel. And uh, we looked at the reel and it, where it was sitting where the 50 was sitting into the rod, this was, and this the funny thing is, this is a brand new rod. This just goes to show, it's just unlucky. But it was a brand new rod, hadn't been used before ever. It was one of the ones that Chris has, Chris has bought down. And where your rod, your 50 wide, sits onto your reel, uh, onto your rod, you have a bracket that runs from the reel around the back of the rod. Yep. And that's basically gives you an extra support for the uh, for the reel to hold onto the rod. Well, the bra- the bolt actually snapped out of that. So it actually snapped. But, I don't know how it snapped, but anyway, we took that off, and the reel was still slipping around, but we're like, oh, we'll get this fish in quickly. As the, fi- as the wise man once said, shit happens. You couldn't have said it better. <laughs> and anyway, we're fighting this fish, and then this reel, so the reel's sitting in the rod, and without the without the harness, I guess you could call it around it, the, the bolt that goes around it, I don't even know what it's called, to tell you the honest truth, I don't know if anyone does, no one's mentioned it to me, but basically <laughs> the bracket around it snapped, so we got the reel sitting in, and we thought, oh, that'll be right, like that's just there for extra support. Meanwhile, the reel starts moving again. And when the reel moves, when a 50 moves off a rod, you can't wind. You just cannot wind in. So I'm well, go- It's like a winch, that's why. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and I said to Bray, I said, the fish come up on the top. I said, we'll get him, we'll get him. He's coming up. Like, get ready, we'll put this gaff in him now. And then Braden's trying to wind. I'm like, why? And I'm screaming. And I'm spinning the boat the other way trying to keep tension. I'm like, what's going on? Like, sort it out. Anyway, Chris is trying to sort it out. We realise that the where the reel actually sits into, the actual seat itself, the reel seat, it was starting to break off, so it was slipping out where the actual arch bit that sits over the reel. So Chris was grabbed about... Which is made out of plastic, I think. No, it? no, it's full um, metal, aluminium. Okay. Um, it might even be, I think it's stainless. And um, Chris grabs about 10 cable ties and cable ties <laughs> the reel to the rod with it in its grooves. That's how much pressure we had, because we we're on 37, we had 12 kilos of drag. So... This reel's cable tied. Do you think the cable ties would hold? No chance. Cable ties would not hold it at all to hold this reel in. So we're th- we're holding this reel just next to the rod. The rod's screaming line out because we've backed the drag off to sort a problem out. And um, we, we thought we all come up with it. Right, let's grab another rod and put the reel, cut the, cut the line off another rod, grab the rod, put that reel on the other rod and just... Braden, because he's harnessed into that reel, will automatically be harnessed into the next rod. But you've got to remember, the line's not going through that rod. It's going through the one it was originally on. So for the next three hours, actually, I think it was three and a half hours. So it might have been two and a half, two hours, two and a half hours. We fought this fish. Chris was holding the rod. And what I mean by holding the rod, like, it's not in your in your normal spot where you hold the rod because you physically can't do that because you're trying to keep the angle to the reel that Braden's harnessed into. So... We swapped it. We took it in turns, like ten minutes on, ten minutes off, ten minutes on. I've got bruises or had bruises all through my groins, my my stomach. I'm never gonna. Finn's not gonna ever have another brother or a sister. And Chris, <laughs> the next day, so we ended up getting this fish up. And because we had the angle of line, 
running off the reel on a, on a really bad angle. It was rubbing on the side of the reel as well as not running through the eyes properly on the rod. And it was a rolled rod. Our line was peeling like I'd been in the sun for 20 minutes. It was literally, the line was peeling off. You don't understand, like snake skin, because I'm going, oh, I don't know where this is gone. Like I'd, I'd, I'd conceive that, all right, this is, we're done here. This is going to be lost in the next 20 seconds. Two hours later, the fish come up, and I just said, we got finally got this. We had it up about 20 times. This fish was so hard to land, and because we couldn't have the right, like Chris is lifting, and, bra- and you'd have to go, wine, Braden, wine. Like we're trying to lift and wine. So there's that much slack. So every time you drop slack, the fish's head drops, and there's another bloody 20 minutes. So it was so hard to do. I can't believe we got this fish in the end, got the gaffs in it. We landed it, and I have never caught a more, more rewarding fish in my life. The pain that my body was going through from holding this rod sideways with 12 kilos of drag, and when I mean sideways, I'm, I'm a pretty strong fella, and it was... As you, as you keep telling me. <laughs> and I was... Yeah, I give credit to Chris. He did most of it. He was that did extremely well. Braden did extremely well. Take a bit of credit for the driving, because that was hard too, but it was a team effort. And uh, poor Braden still hasn't caught his first barrel by himself because all three of us held the rod. But uh, we landed a beautiful fish and uh, we're fortunate enough to, to land that after nearly three and a half hours of pain, let's put it that way. But yeah, I was pretty happy that we got that fish. Long Hang story on. short. I've just realised that you've got all my game rods. It, it wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't no, one of mine. Wasn't, was it? It, was a, it was a brand new 37 kilo outfit. <laughs> If it had been any of yours, it would have been cracked over. would have lost it. <laughs> <laughs> um, closer to home, yep. um, we've seen some, some really interesting uh, info set out by Vic Fishers. They posted during the week on their Instagram page. And you can follow us on our Real Adventures Instagram page at Real Adventures. Um, but a tag, King George Whiting in the Geelong arm of Port Phillip Bay. It's grown 12.5 centimetres in 19 months. Does that surprise you? Uh, I'm not too sure, to be honest with you. Um I don't know. Not with how many you pulled no. out of the. Uh, he obviously Port didn't. He obviously wasn't fishing swimming where I was. <laughs> <laughs> so twelve point five in nineteen months. So that's the biggest whiting on record as in tagged fish that's grown. Well, uh, that has grown. Yeah, more than half a uh, one and a half years later, it was recaptured, measuring thirty nine point five. So nearly forty centimeters. So that, it's a it's a huge amount of that's a. Well, we'd say it did not move far from where it was recaptured, only a few kilometres where it was initially tagged, Clifton Springs. And this comes back to, and I don't want to get into a massive argument, comes back to that netting factor with fish staying in areas. And I've always said at Clifton Springs, I believe that it's sort of a place where fish stay in areas for a period of time. I've always said that. Where your tidal areas, such as like Queenscliff and St. Leonard's, they have the ability to move in and out with your tidal strengths. So I believe that netters should be able to hit those areas rather than the stagnant water areas. But that's each their own. That's another argument. I'll probably get crucified for that. But they're saying that there's been a total of 927 King George Whiting being tagged in Port Phillip and Western Port since 2017, and 67 have been recaptured. Uh, so it bodes, it bodes well for the for the fishery. I was just going to say that it's obviously never. I never caught any of those fish because they were they were tagged with my whiting hook and, <laughs> and then into the bucket, Patrick. Uh, while we're on whiting, and I'll extrapolate that into snapper, setting up your rod holders, snapper racks, are you one to buy off the shelf? Can I just stop your word there? Your snapper racks. You said rod holders, snapper racks. It's called snapper racks because snap fishermen use them, but not only that, they're designed for fishing itself. Does that make sense, Pat? So I'm pretty sure they're all designed for fishing. Yeah, so but you like the, you to explain the, it to me. So the word snapper rack, people tend to think you catch snapper with them, which you do. So 
they catch every other species. So they're really important to have on a boat. And I don't think it's just for snapper. It's whiting, it's gummy sharks, it's whatever you're chasing to lay your rods at an angle, which is at an angle that the fish is going to grab the line and have its best chance of running and hooking up at the same time without damaging your rod, but also getting your best hook up right. So your snapper, what did you call it? Your snapper racks as such. Well, so, that's what they call no, you are right. Mate, I go you are right. Or when you go into a shop, that's what they say. Snapper racks, or you get them custom made, a yep. custom made snapper rack. And custom made, I think, is a great, a great way to design something that suits your boat as such. Not only that, you can also design them in comfort for yourself. So you can have them at certain heights, at certain um, spaces apart. You can have them over the bait board for whatever you need. But if you buy them from the shelf, um, let's just say you go into a tackle store or whatever it is, a, a marine outlet, and you buy a, a buy yourself a rack, quite often they're not going to... And, and when you say a rack, a snapper rack is designed to run from the bait board to the corner of your gunnel and then back up the side of your hull yep. to, to set your rod spread out. Where from the shop, you're just not going to have one that sets up properly. The only drama to your specific boat. Not, no, it, it'll probably work and get away with it. But if you want something that's decent, you don't have to spend a hell of a lot of money. You can find cheaper ones. You don't have to get the real thick stainless work. You can get the the thin one. I know Macquarie's in uh, Melbourne. Yeah, they're a little bit pricey, but the quality that you get, I would buy every day of the week. Yep. So um, Kane Macquarie's stainless and fiberglass, they have there too. You're gonna, you know what you're going to get. It's going to be quality. It's going to last. You're not going to have a rod take off in the rod holder and have one of the rod holders snap off and lose a rod. And I have had that happen on boats and numerous times. I was actually fishing with a good mate of mine, Kev, in Marlow a few years ago, and we were running our kingfish rod, uh, rods out of the rod holders, and someone didn't back the drag offs to the drag that we've been running when they hit the bait, and that snapper rack full kingfish drag, just busted, and all of a sudden he went, his $1,000 Stella, and his samurai, it was a samurai jig rod, which was worth quite a bit too, which took off as well and snapped. So you don't want to be losing them too much. No. Uh, before we get into the rest of the show, Redmond, a little bit of news around full drive scene. Jeep have released a new car, but also the Mazda BT50, their 2020 model, has been released. Smaller engine, but still with a three-and-a-half-ton towing capacity, so when it comes to launching... And retrieving boats, clearly that's the most important part for us. We're going to mm. see a few new uh, rigs being released over the next 12 months. Exciting time for, for anglers in the market for a new ute. Well, I am in the market for a ute at the moment. So that is just, Yes, I am. Oh, uh, nice. I do love this Volkswagen that I have at the moment, the Amarok. I cannot fault it, and yep. I'm probably going to purchase it. But <laughs> I, uh, I'm at the stage now, I need to, due to COVID and uh, obviously a bit of a deal I had with them, they've had to call the car back, which is no drama, 100% understand. But... I'd really enjoy the Amarok, and back to what you were saying with the Mazda dropping their engine size, is uh, is it going to, is it, the reason that the Amarok was so low in the market was they had the towing capacity, but they didn't have the bigger engines, where the Amarok now with the towing, with the engines being so big and the Mazda going down, is it going to hurt them a little bit? Are people going to go back to the older model and buy the bigger engine, or what's going to happen there, Pat? Um, look, if they're saying their towing capacity hasn't changed... And it's going to be more fuel efficient. That's yep. the new gearbox they're putting in it. Yep. Um, I can't see why anyone why it would deter anyone from purchasing it. I owned a Mazda BT50, and I couldn't fault the car. I thought it was 
terrific, to be honest with you. It was a really good car, and same as Yamrock. So I think they're nearly as good as each other these days, Pat. Two huge episode of Real Adventures coming your way. You can follow us on our Facebook page at Real Adventures Show as well as our Instagram page to join in the conversation. If there's something you'd like us to review or you've got a question in regards to your next boat or your next fishing adventure, make sure you join in the conversation. Plenty more Real Adventures after the break. You're listening to Real Adventures with Patrick Dangerfield and Aaron Hadgood. Welcome back to Real Adventures. It's time for the social club where we answer your questions from social media. If you've got a question for Aaron or I, make sure you send it into our Real Adventures Facebook or Instagram page. Generally, the fishing questions are for you. I'm not sure why that is, Redmond. Yeah, probably because I fish. (laughs) (laughs) All right. First question is... Simple answer. (laughs) ...is from Bill Long. Flying or fixed gaff when tuna fishing, Aaron, what do you prefer to use? Yeah, I'm tipping he's asking about the barrel bluefin and... Maybe he might be asking this because... And I sent you a message when you you texted me that you'd caught a... um, You'd landed the fish. Um, That you'd taken 400 shots (laughs) at this tuna with you. I thought you'd use... I thought you'd honestly used a shotgun and shot it in the head. It had that many holes in its head. There was two from the gaffs gaff. in it. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe. I've never seen so many gaff shots. There wasn't. There's was only two. Like it come up. I gaffed the shoulder, and, I, and then I said, "I said second gaff." And then Chris came over the back and went bang with the second one. And obviously that puts four holes in it: the in, the out, the in, the out. I reckon there was more than that. And I, reckon <laughs> I don't because- miss a gaff shot, Patrick. <laughs> Not when you've been fighting the fish for three and a half hours on a hand line. Well, that's why I think there was so many gaff shots because you're all so nervous. <laughs> you gaff it, go get Just the, get every the shotgun. Flying gaff, fixed, fixed, mouth gaff, and. Tail gaff, like wicked tuna. <laughs> um, I shouldn't say that. No, this, there was two I, gaff shots. I did have a mate that, and he had a licensed firearm. He used to take a firearm in the boat when he'd go mako fishing. He'd go by himself. You've got to get him in trouble big. I'll, I'll make this very clear. I don't condone this sort of behaviour, but would take a, a licensed oh, firearm. Crap, Patrick. It, they're bloody dangerous things, mako sharks. Have you ever had I'm not one? talking about taking a gun out and shooting a shark on air. I just thought you were taking, I just thought you used a a shotgun, given how many holes that poor tuna had in its head. You certainly weren't releasing that fish. <sighs> I'll tell you what. There was, there was water leaking out of the fish the whole time. If that fish hadn't have lost itself in three and a half hours that we gave it the chance to lose itself, it's coming home with us because it put us through hell pain. I had to do exercise. I don't like that. And like I said, my groin area is still that bruised a week and a half later. That fish tasted good too. Um, got a good aim. Uh, flying what are we, where are we at? Fixed gaff. <laughs> Red, are you use flying gaff or fixed gaff? Uh, definitely fixed gaff. Now, the flying gaff you can use. There's no argument for that. I would more use a fixed gaff on bigger sharks. Uh, sorry, a flying gaff. Sorry, a flying gaff on bigger sharks. So just uh, talk us through what a flying gaff is yep. and how that works. So a flying gaff is a gaff that isn't as such fixed to a pole. So what happens is the gaff sits in the pole. Um, and you hold it to the pole with the rope, basically. Yeah, you're holding it to the pole. So you're holding the tension with a rope. So the rope runs from the actual uh, the gaff, the actual U-shaped gaff bit, the, the hook part, and you're holding the rope, the tension with that onto the pole, and you gaff it with the pole and the, str- and, and the rope in your hand at once. But with that rope, you've already tied it off to the hull of your boat. That's what I like to do straight away. Well, before I've gaffed a fish, it's always uh, tied off to the a, a cleat or whatever you're tying it off to on your, on your hull. Excuse me. And then... You gaff the fish. You're right there, mate. Just 
bit of indigestion. You ga- <laughs> haven't had brekkie this morning, you had an orange juice. And it, uh, I gaffed the fish and uh, you, you, you floss me. So you gaff the fish with a the, with the flying gaff and yep. then you pull the pole out. The pole then goes onto the boat itself, like it's, you throw it out of the way. And then you're basically holding a rope and that's you, you're the rope and the gaff and the fish, that's what's between you. And you can, the, the advantage for this is you can use the rope, if it does pull hard, you can use the rope and have it tied off to the boat. For these big bluefin tuna... You don't attach it to like a 44-gallon drum like Jaws? <laughs> I actually... I'm not gonna, no, I'm not going to go to Wicked Tuna because they did a f- cool thing the other day. They threw a rod in the water on a boy because they had a double hookup. They actually threw... They had a double hookup on Wicked Tuna and one was going off the front of the boat, one going back. And because they were fighting the fish at the back, they only allowed one fish at a time as in to bring in. So they fought the one at the back and they lost it. And they went back and looked for the big boy they had where the, to fight that fish, picked it up in the water... They had the rod. They, they threw the rod, the the rod on a boy that's, into the water. That's going to be good for it. Well, that's what I said. But he said to lose a thousand, like the, the fish is probably a ten thousand dollar fish, fish. For a, probably a two thousand dollar rod. But they got it and they cleaned it all, and it worked. But anyway, a fixed gaff means a fixed gaff is. Haven't we just gone off topic today? It's been good. <laughs> a fixed gaff <laughs> is a gaff that's fixed to the pole, and what it means is as soon as you gaff the fish, you're basically holding the fish. It's up to you and your muscle to hold the fish. Quite often when these barrels come up and you've got a, ga- a fixed gaff in them, they might go a little bit hard for a bit, but then they will go. Um, they'll tend to settle down and you get the second gaff or the 24th like I did during the week. Dylan Schultz, carpet versus new foam versus uh, rubber decking system or checker plate flooring. Boys, I'm in the market to update my flooring on my boat. What would you go with? Definitely something soft on your feet. That's, That's what I'm the only way I can explain it. The reason for that is... Uh, long days for myself in the water. I don't know, I've got crap feeders. I have to wear thongs around the house because I get sore feet. What's not wrong with me? But basically, I would be going the foam flooring. Which is basically, it's a synthetic flooring system. Yeah, yep. yep. And people say, oh, is it hard to clean it off? I had that, I borrowed that boat, the Hain Signature 650 from Jake during the week, kind enough to lend me a boat for that barrel tuna. At Geelong Marine World? Yep, Geelong Marine World. And they were kind enough to lend it to me because I got a new boat getting built. And... The blood stains, so I didn't really... I gave the boat the tiny clean that after we got the fish. To be good. Um, no, it was, it, we were coming home. and Because uh, it was on the way home. We, we did a half a day and come home and we cleaned it when we got home, which you would think it would have dried probably four hours later. It all come off extremely easy. Uh, they say if you can't get something off it, use a little bit of de- degreaser pat. Degreaser works really well on the foam flooring. I'll call it foam, foam yep. flooring as such. Yeah. Uh, Checkered plate, I've had that in the old um, Stabie, the 2100. It is cold, that's the only thing. Or, or hot. hot. Or hot or in hot, yeah. a Very <laughs> hot in a hot, hot day. But hard on your feet. Yep. Like no shoes or if you're wearing shoes, it's hard no matter what. And carpet, if you had to ask me, that'd be the first thing I would take out of a boat. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, it might be slightly nicer on your foot, but... Times have changed from, yeah, it, this smells, especially if you oh, get little things smell. that caught in it. If you get a big bluefin tuna with that blood, the blood stinks, Pat, runs through your carpet, there's nothing worse than like trying to get it out. You go through, you can't get it out, let's be honest. It's, it's a horrible, horrible smell and carpet just holds it. Where the foam floor and it comes off, it doesn't seep into it as well as, I'd go, I'd go the stainless floor over carpet any day of the week. Yep. I think the, if you are in the market for new flooring, one of the best products on the market is Sea Deck, which is uh, Southern... Textiles company, so 
comes out of the States and it's a really good quality product. There's plenty of uh, other products out there which are good and there's also a lot of crap cheap mm. knockoffs. Spend the money. That you can buy on the net and you've got to spend the money yeah. because it's it's actually the, the adhesion properties that are that are just as important as the actual foam decking itself because if it doesn't stick properly, it ends up raising up and you end up ripping the thing out anyway and it's going to cost you a hell of a lot more than you initially had planned on spending. So spend the money for something like a, a C-deck type material um, you won't regret it. No, you won't. And you can also get custom inside of it, Pat. You can get your um, yeah, in- your names and you can get things written into it. You can you get can. measuring measuring platforms on the bottom of it as well, which is pretty cool. Tim, uh, boys, I'm looking at putting a toilet on the boat to do or not to do. Would you put a toilet on the boat? Well, I reckon it was this time last year. I've got a rule. You don't poo on the boat. I'm going to get in trouble here because it's a marine park. I refuse to go pooing on a boat. It's not allowed. I haven't done it. Never, ever done it. I went to Mud Island last time. I had a curry the night before, and that's enough. I had to go. I refused to do it on the boat. I was too grossed out. Tell you what I would do, and this is not a blatant plug, I would literally buy a... Portaloo thing? Dometic Portaloo, yep. Yeah, right. So you put... So it's it's not plumbed in. So I've I've had a plumbed in boat on my old smuggler. Um, And the problem is with those, they do leak at times, and they are a bit challenging to... um, to clean the beauty of a portable toilet, you bring it in, throw bring it out, <laughs> bring it out. Dometics range start at 159 bucks. They're cheap as hell, and they're certainly worth using. So that's what I would stick to. Uh, Redmond, that wraps up our social club. If you've got a question for Aaron or I, make sure you shoot it into our Real Adventures social media pages. It's now time for our dream boating destination. Before we go into that, you mentioned Smuggler, your old boat. Yeah. Down in Portland last week, I forgot to tell you this when I was on the phone to you, a, a couple of gentlemen down there were chasing the barrel bluefin and we had a beer at the pub with them and talked to them that night and they had a black smuggler all custom done up that you, I think you'd comp, you tagged me in their post ages ago. Yeah. I had, had a look at the boat. Would it have had an Evan Rude E-Tech on the back of it? No, I think they'd put something out, a Suzuki I reckon they had on it. Okay. I'd have to check. But it was a it was a beautiful looking boat, and it looked unreal on the water. Like it actually really was, and that was fully custom, like done up, prop yeah. to top. Like I thought it was, yeah. No, it was featured on uh, on the Captain magazine. Yeah, so, right. Was it? yep. So wonderful, wonderful magazine. Also a great Facebook um, page. The Captain they do some wonderful uh, editorials and, and video promos Reviews, on yep. different boats. Absolutely. It's now time for our dream boating destinations where we cover Australia's dream boating destinations and places that you need to look at for your next adventure. Our dream boating destination for this morning is Fraser Island, Australia's World Heritage listed island. Now it is an incredible, it's a beautiful beach, stretches over 123 k's in length. Um, It's 22 k's at its widest point, so it's an area of roughly 180 odd thousand hectares it's the largest sand island in the world and when it comes to fishing it is just about the best beach destination for fishing in australia you can catch some of the biggest sharks at night we stayed there redmond back in it's a few years ago now early 2000s with mum and dad when we we're traveling a few australia. years ago um, got bogged on the beach the uh, the bash plate on the front of the uh the ford courier reversed itself so that didn't go too well but some beautiful Beautiful pools there, champagne pools along the along the waterline. Kids absolutely love it. But when it comes to fishing, Redmond, um, it has little adversaries. Yeah, you can catch, like you said, sharks. People, anglers, go there to target big shark, especially during the night. But during the warm months, you're going to catch whiting, which sand whiting up there. 
Bream, Dart, and Mackerel, and they're all... You've got to look for gutters. It's the same as beach fishing down here. Gutters are the ones you need to look for. That's where you're going to find most of your fish. Trevally, Flathead, Tuna have been caught, Swallowtail, and like I said, the shark fishing, you will... I keep saying, people literally travel all around the world to, to catch land-based yep. sharks in yep. this place. Um, you've also... A few, of the, a few of the prize places to fish is Middle Rocks, which is just uh, north of the Indian Head. You've got Sandy Cape, the most northern point on the Fraser Island. You've also got uh, Wa- uh, sorry, Wadey Point, which is on the northeast coast. South Moon Point, which is the sand flats on the western side. But just be mindful when you are there. There are no fishing zones in areas around Fraser Island that you cannot fish. So when you go there, check your rules, your regulations on whatever you're catching, but also on where you're fishing itself. For more info on Fraser Island, head to www.fraserisland.net. Fraser Island is our dream boating destination for this morning. Plenty more Real Adventures after the break. On Real Adventures, it's time to get all aboard for Dometic Mobile Living Made Easy. Welcome back to Real Adventures. It's time for All Aboard, thanks to the Dometic CIB 26 Cooler Bag. Keep food and drinks cool on your adventures. Our very special guest this morning is Al McGlashan. Without doubt, Redmond, the greatest fishing photographer in the country. Good morning, Al. Good morning, gentlemen. How are we today? Oh, just, haven't you seen my whiting photos, Pat? Fishing. Well, Al does it all. (laughs) Author, content creator, filmmaker, fishing with mates, clearly one of our favourites. Now, Al, this morning we're talking chasing swordfish with your good self. Now, you've captured some of the most unbelievable images over your time. Talk us through the journey chasing swordfish off the east coast of Australia? Well, it's been good. So the interesting thing, if you go right back, and we're talking right back 20-odd years or 25 years when no one knew much about them, we used to fish for them at night because that's what you did. And I even put generators on the front of the boat and all those things <laughs> and fished out in the middle of the night. God-awful weather, raining and cold. And all that time, we caught two. Like, in, I think it was six or seven years. Like we caught one when we were doing strike zone videos just by chance, drove out, put the gear down, hooked up the 70 kilo one. We caught a tiny one we tagged with the Billfish Foundation. But for the amount of hours we put in, it was rubbish. It's just so frustrating. So then we started, by then, I think the first one caught was, wasn't in Florida, but it was down somewhere over there anyway. We, we started hearing about that, and I started chatting to some of the guys. Then they're all fishing 600 metres and catching them. So I spoke to the longliners here, and they said, no, 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 you don't catch them, they all fish wider. So we fished out wider, and Richie Abella was doing it as well. We both started trying, and we were dropping baits down, and he ended up catching one. We caught everything but a swordfish. We caught big eyes and thresher sharks and all these cool things in yellowfin. Didn't catch one. And then the guys down in Tassie rang up and said, oh, we should try it down here. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, give it a crack and see how it goes. And, of course, then they started catching it, and that then kicked it off, and... We came back into 600 metres, and the ironic thing is, Coops and I were fished off Sydney, and I said, let's go to Browns. Browns at 600 metres. We'll fish off the edge, drop the bait down, and what do we do? Catch one straight away. <laughs> and just went, we've been driving past the bloody things for years and years, have <laughs> caught them, and we've literally driven over their heads all the time. So, and yeah, that really started kicking things off after there. Al, there's a real mystery um, with swordfish, simply because they, they do leave so deep down now you've caught some incredible fish over your journeys that got one of the most iconic shots i can remember with that beautiful mako shark um underwater chewing on that marlin um 
But there is something special about swordfish, the mystery surrounding them versus the the plentifulness almost that we get in, you know, the other species, whether it be tuna, um, beautiful mako sharks or marlin. But there is something special about swordfish. Oh, there is. You know, and for me, the big thing is, so swordfishing is like marlin fishing, but it's 600 metres. So you can't see the boat the way you do with a marlin. Everything we're doing is we're theorising, you know, what they're doing down there. And 90% of the time, we're completely wrong. Because with a marlin, you know, you like baiting on the south coast of New South Wales. The bait school's at 25 fathoms. You know it's coming up so you can see it. You see the marlin tailing on the surface. You get a bite, you hook up. Swordfish, it's, you know, 600 times further away. So everything's all complicated. But they're such big fish. That's the thing that I love about it. And it's all this. I feel like with swordfish, like we're doing at the moment, we're trying them. I've been ignoring Malacuta and Lake Zenford, so I've been fishing up New South Wales and trying to fish off Sydney, which we've got them before. Do you think I've done any good this year? I haven't even got a single bite. Like, not <laughs> even a fish. You... So I feel like it's like you've gone back to the beginning, you know, like like you said before about catching whiting and stuff. You know, when you first start it and you get excited to catch or get a bite or see one, I feel like I've gone back there. You're going to catch marlin or tuna there. I wouldn't say easy, but we know what to do. With swordfish, every time I think I've got it right, I get slapped in the face by a wet fish and go back to square one. I'm like, oh, come on. It's the challenge. We're chatting with Al McGlashan. If you're interested in watching some of Al's work, you can head to his YouTube channel to see uh, captures of the beautiful swordfish in daytime with Richie Bell. It's on your YouTube channel at the moment, Al. Um, you spoke about only... You know, chasing this year, haven't had a bite, or it's been, you know, it's been pretty sparse. What hope do the rest of us have then to chase them if someone like yourself struggles to go out and get them? <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of people say that, but you know what? If you've got a bait in the water, you've got a chance. And the one thing we've learned, and this is probably a really critical part about sword fishing, because you're fishing 600 meters and you're drifting, it's not like marlin. You think when you go marlin fishing, New Zealanders or or tuna fishing, which is obviously very relevant down in Victoria at the moment, is you drive out, you put the lures in the water, you're fishing all day. When you're sword fishing, you drive out, it's usually a long, you know, long run to the ground, you've got the bait, that can take anything up to half an hour to get down there, then you're fishing, then you've got to check the bait normally, say, within an hour, an hour and a half, so you bring it back up. So actually in the space of a day, you're not actually fishing that much. This is the big thing. So the biggest thing I can advise is that and Richie Abella and George Lorenz and all those blokes are really good at is getting all the gear ready, running out early, so you're maximising your time. So there's no mucking around. So you don't drive out to the ground and go, oh, we'll rig up a bait, we'll have a wander around, we might put a bait in the water. The more time the bait's down the strike zone, the more chance you've got. And the, the beauty is that I haven't worked it out yet, so and no one's really got it wide. So the more people coming out with you know a fresh approach might just trigger on something and go, oh, this is what we've been doing wrong all this time. So that's the beauty of it. We're all almost, we're almost, I suppose, in the in the same boat, literally, when it comes to swordfish. That was the question I was going to ask you, Al. The preparation that goes into it. It's take us through. It's not just rigging a few baits when you get out there. You're setting the freezer yeah, up look, beforehand. You're doing all sorts of preparing. You're rigging your baits, also your lights, your sinkers. Take us through it. So we set up everything beforehand. So what we do is. We rig all the baits. If you're stitching a squid or you're doing a, a belly strip or, I mean, guys have even used eels and all types of things. So we're doing different baits. So they're all rigged up ready. We cryovac them and put them in the freezer. So when we're going to sea, we're all ready 
pulling a couple of those out to defrost them and stuff. And this time of year, it's so bloody cold. It takes forever to defrost the damn thing. And then as we're getting towards the ground, we'll start sounding. And that's the other thing that's really critical. One thing we have found is you need to see the bait to get the bite. Yep. You need a decent sounder that, you know, like I'm running a two kilowatt through my, through my Ferrino to see bait. If we find bait, we generally seem to get bites. And this year I've struggled for bait off Sydney and I'm not getting bites. So it's, it's the same as tuna fish, it's the same as marlin fish. If you find bait, you'll catch the fish. You know, if the gannets are dropping in, you go past them, generally that's a better chance than driving around the middle of nowhere. And the problem is, at 600 metres, you can't see anything except what's on your sounder. So I start sounding around straight away, and the guys are then putting the lights on. Use good lights. A lot of guys buy cheap lights. Cheap lights are obviously not as bright and don't work as well. So the, I think it's Lindman Pitman or something, which is a better strobe style light. And then what we do is we run a longer leader, so I run about 100 and, uh, up to 100 metres of mono, and they use heavier mono. And the reason is it's not IGFA legal. The important part is that I can run the light further up the line. I don't want to use, say, 80 pound main line or something like that and then have lights attached to that because I don't want some fish coming and belting the light and then hitting the line. So you want to use, so we use 130 or 150 pound mono, you know, suffix or something, and not fluorocarbon. Obviously, use just a monofilament, so it's sort of more more malleable and not, not as stiff. And then we rig the lights and we spread them out along the line. So the theory is that it's covering a greater area, so it's drawing them in from a greater distance. And it worked in New South Wales, but it has been working for everyone <laughs> down in Victoria. Well, you speak of Victoria. So, yeah, and, and, then, and then it's just setting the gear. And then the big thing there is the next step, in, and this is back to what you said before about that preparation, is then you need to have it so when that gear starts, when you start dropping to the bottom, that everything works. So we set the gear up, we spread it across the boat all neatly, have a, you've got to get a system in place, and then when you're dropping, everything on the line is attached to the line. So you don't use those um, long line of clips and put a, clip it on the main line because A, it kinks your line, and B, it spins as it's going down, so it's creating twists. Because so, you don't want to drop it 600 metres and get it all tangled up when it's on the bottom. And the other part we've been doing is trying to run two lines. And we got a bite the other day on the way down, which we think was from a great big squid or something. And my God, because I tried to be greedy and both lines down at the same time, you should have seen the snot ball that came up of all my gear tangled up. <laughs> that would have so, been yeah, nasty. So, yeah, the, stick to the procedure. And, don't do it. and then the problem is when you gear, when you tangle, you're not fishing again. So it goes back to the original one that, you know, you've got eight, nine hours of daylight in the day at the moment. You don't get a lot of time. And all of a sudden, there's another hour of uncutting and re-rigging and tying stuff. So get the system right. That's the key. Al, we know travelling is a big part of it uh, here in Victoria uh, for lake, to get head out of lakes and Mallacoota and the likes. What's the travel to the sword grounds out of Sydney? Well, 600 metres is only 20 miles. And if you go down somewhere like Jarvis Bay or something, it's only 12, 13 miles out the front. So again, the same thing. We've been focusing on that 600 metres and on that line because what we do know for swordfish is all the satellite tagging around the world is during the day they sit 400 to 600 meters yeah it's consistent everywhere but what's interesting is some of my long line mates are still catching quite a lot of swords the wreck guys have struggled big time in new south wales this year but the commercial blokes have been catching them but they're sitting on the thousand fathom line the one thing i'm going to do over the next few weeks is fish out wider use a line counter drop it down that five, 600 metres, but not fishing it on the bottom. So change the, go back to what we did before, try and focus on those 
those edges where there's less current out wider where there's bluefin or yellowfin and stuff up high yep. and fish underneath them and see if that works for us. We might have to get him back on, Patrick, after that. See how we went. We'll certainly be following with great anticipation. Al McGlashan, thanks for joining us this morning and talking through uh, the beautiful swordfish. You can follow Al McGlashan on Instagram and Facebook, and he's got a wonderful YouTube channel as well. Thanks, Al. Anytime, boys. Anytime. You're listening to Real Adventures with Patrick Dangerfield and Aaron Hadgood. Welcome back to Real Adventures. It's time for Red's Tip. Now, we just ran out a little bit of time in that last interview, Redmond, so I need you to wrap this into a bit of a review. Can you do that for me? <sighs> yep, I can do it. Got it. The review, tip and review this week is not panicking. Now, what I mean by that is a lot of people go out and they stress, they yell, and the reason I know this for a fact is because I see it. And you did it last week. No, I don't panic when I fish, Patrick, everywhere else except fishing. <laughs> everywhere else no the reason I, I see it on like social media clips a lot of people posting videos of hooking barrels and they're yelling they're screaming they're quickly quick do this and carry on there's no yelling it's just complete the whole time same level voices and don't rush that is the biggest lie I have ever heard I've been out with you no and, and you just said you just said same level of your voice you can raise it a little bit, but not too much. <laughs> I don't yell. I do a bit. No, I, I seriously, you got it. Like during the week, we were so calm and collected. It was talking between the boat driver. <laughs> it was talking between the boat driver, the rod, and Chris. It's not panicking. We managed to land a massive bluefin tuna. And you never elevated your voice once? No, not once, actually. Not once. Ask the boys. I was very cool, calm, and collected. You've just elevated your voice now to try and defend yourself. I'm about oh, to no, get angry now. <laughs> Cut it. I'm angry. No. But even when you're in the whiting, for example, and a lot of people, what happens is if you're in the whiting and you get a you get a fish, if you've got a burly bucket out, quite often every couple of trips, you'll get a whiting stuck around a burly bucket. And they'll go, oh, crap, it's around the burly bucket. And they're lifting their rods up. They're trying to untangle it. Just put that rod down. Just stop for two or three seconds and just pull the burly pot up casually and then pull the fish over the side. As soon as you start panicking, you're going to lose so many fish. Do you reckon people just try and rip it in as quickly as they possibly That's the, can? They're, they're panicking. The first thing they try and do is get that fish into the boat. Now, don't panic at all. Like The thing is, panicking ain't going to do anything for you. You're not going to benefit one bit from it. Puts more stress it, on your gear. And not only that, it stresses the other people out. So they stay, they make mis- they make mistakes. If I had been yelling when the boat was um, when I was trying to get tension into the rod, like I'm raising your voice obviously with adrenaline and you're know, trying to talk like quick, quick, come on. Like it's not yelling. Uh, so I'm trying to get tension in this rod on the week, and the boys are like, I can't wind, I can't wind. I'm like, okay, stop, stop. So what do we need to do? So I just stopped the boat, and we 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 stopped. We had. I got the boat in a correct position so we were downwind drifting off the tuna the tuna had tension and we could fix the problem there were three of us on this reel and we're just trying to work it out we're trying to cable tie whatever we're trying to do but as soon as you start rushing around and screaming like a fool you're going to stuff things up you're going to put pressure on your mates and this comes back from experience about oh, a long time ago 10, 10, 8, 10 years ago when I first started marlin fishing with the boys I forgot that they hadn't done them before and a couple of trips we had some serious arguments from me raising my voice and yelling at them. I forget that they don't know what they're doing. They're, they're here for a holiday to catch a, a, a nice marlin. Have some fun. Well, I'm there, and I know what I'm doing. I do this a lot. This is my job. Where it was, in the end, the last few years, instead of me going, no, I'll gaff the fish. No, I'll lead the fish up. No, I'll do this. 
I just say, boys, what do you want to do? Like, because if I put it back on them, then they can say, no, you go. Or I can say to them, no, no, you go. You learn, you do this. But it's talking like that rather than me going, get out of the way. Like, let me grab this. So it's about being balanced on a boat with the, between the whole team and also being supportive of each other rather than yelling. And this comes, not so much your whiting, but that was just an example. It's about when you're targeting big game fish, the pressure it puts on you and the frustration it can make you have is just out of control. So it's about balancing yourself and you're going to land 10 times more fish. That was Red's tip. Finishing off the flying gaff. Now, it's been um, an interesting week, Redmond. Obviously, um, we had the, the positive test with when it came comes to footy with Conor McKenna, then it came back negative, um, and that sort of stirred up all kinds of sort of emotions around the place. Let's make sure, as a community, we're doing absolute our absolute best to make sure we're still abiding by the social distancing guidelines. Even though a lot have been relaxed, the last thing we want is to have to go back to how it was a few weeks ago where we can't go out and fish, where we can't go out and surf. So we've all got a role to play within it. Yep, let's go out and enjoy the great outdoors. Let's go fishing. Let's enjoy our peer fishing. But let's not congregate where we don't need to because we don't want to cost each other and ourselves an opportunity to go out and enjoy the thing that we love doing. Redmond? I'm going fishing. I don't know. What are you doing? I'm going to training. (laughs) See you next week. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.